Well, recently, uh, we've been looking at a very, very familiar story found in the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel. It is often most commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. But hopefully if you were here the first week and last week, you realize there's not just one boy that's lost, there's two. But they're lost in very different ways. The first one is the obvious candidate for lostness. He goes out on his own, doing his own thing, finding his own reality and making life what he believes it ought to be until the money runs out. The other boy looks to be the good son, but in reality, he's full of self-righteousness and he's lost and he's angry with the father just like the younger boy. Today, we're going to read the passage about the older son. But before that, we're going to read kind of the setting of the story and two other important things that help us understand the whole point of what we're going to be talking about today. And that is seeking to find the true elder brother. Listen to God's word as it comes to us from Luke 15, beginning at verse 1 through verse 10, and then verse 25 through 32. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, meaning Jesus, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So he, meaning Jesus, told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Of course, that's in their own eyes. Jesus then says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
then if you will, turn, look at verse 25 through verse 32. Now his older brother was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come, and your father's killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look. These many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your commands. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate to be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive he was lost and is found the word of the lord may god add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it let us pray father once again we ask for the help and guidance of the holy spirit that we might see the truth and we might apply it to our lives with humbleness and meekness, receiving the engrafted word. And Lord, let it bear the peaceable fruit of righteousness in us that we might be the kind of brothers that we should be. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we all know and love fairy tales, right? And what do you always know about a fairy tale? It always has a good ending. The story always, no matter how twisted it gets along the way, it ends well. Everything turns out right. The ending is good. So I want you to listen to the conclusion of Jesus' story. Shall we call it an alternative ending? Remember what I just read? And after hearing the father's plea, the older son also came to his senses. He repented of his self-righteousness and bitterness, and he joined the feast with his brother and his father. And they all lived happily ever after. Right? Didn't, didn't you see that in your Bible? You, you don't have that in yours? No, you don't. You don't have that at all. That's not how the story ends. The brother is still outside in his anger. You see, in scriptures, the scriptures that we just read, there's a break in the pattern established by two stories that Jesus started this uh, chapter with. 
He started with two stories. Most of you think it's the story of the prodigal son. I told you it's not. It's the prodigal sons, but it's even more than that. It's not two stories, I mean, one story. It's three. And yet there's a break in the pattern that starts with the first two when you get to the third one. And there's also a certain unfinished business or open-endedness in this last story designed to highlight a very important problem, a serious problem in this text. Something is really wrong. Something's off kilter. Something is not turning out the way it's supposed to be. So, Today, we're going to look at this again with this outline. Where's the problem? I just mentioned it. What's missing from this story that needs to be there? And who's called for in this story? What kind of people are called for by what this story teaches us. So let's dig in. Where's the problem? You say, what do you mean, Job? What problem? Well, remember the elder brother that we looked at last week? Because of his pride in his good deeds, that's what's keeping him away from the celebration. It's pride in his good deeds rather than remorse over his bad deeds. That's what's keeping the elder son from the feast of the father. The main obstacle between the Pharisees and God is not their sins so much, although that is true. But more than that, it's their righteousness. It's what Luther called their damnable good works. That was more of a barrier than their overt sins that we recognize. They were blinded in the light. Luther, from his thesis number three, said this. Although the works of humans always seem attractive and good, they are nevertheless likely to be mortal sins. How can that be? Because of what's beneath them and what's under them. Even the good works and the things that look like good are often rotting beneath in the reasons for doing them and the why. You see, that's what was holding back the older brother. To be saved, we must not only repent of the things that we've done wrong, and that is part of what we should do. Certainly when we sin and we know we've disobeyed God's law and done something wrong, we should repent of that. We should ask forgiveness of that. But in order to understand better, you've got to go beyond that. We must not only repent of the things that we've done wrong, but also the reasons that we've done things right. In other words, there was a time when you really did something really good. 
as far as everyone else seeing, maybe even had good effects and benefits. But why were you doing it? Why was I doing it? I was wanting to be recognized. I was wanting to be bragged upon because of how well I did that. You see, my whole motive for doing it was wrong. And therefore, that cannot be a true good. Pharisees repent only of their known sins. Christians repent of the very roots of their own righteousness. They know that, Lord, even though I did everything that I could, you know that my motives are so convoluted and so twisted. Lord, please forgive me, not only for what I did when I sinned, but forgive me for the twistedness motives in my heart. You see, the Pharisees want only to deal with that which is obvious and outside. A Christian is called to go deeper, to go beneath, to peel the onion. You see, it's of the things that are under our sin and our attempts at righteousness that are the problem that is often the greatest. Because why? We're either trying to get around, we're either trying to get around God, we don't like his plan, so we're trying to put in place our own, or we're trying to somehow get control of him so that he will do what we want and need done. We're amazingly sophisticated in our ability to do that and not even recognize in ourselves. But that's what deep repentance begins to look like. And my friends, if you and I ever begin to get that and understand what Luther was saying and what I'm talking about here, you're on the verge of beginning to really understand, beginning to really understand what the gospels are really all about. Because it provides a righteousness that is not of your doing. You can't generate it. It comes from outside. It's alien. It's given because of what Christ has done. But there's another big problem here in this text also. And that's the cost factor. And, and that's in the story. Many people look at this story and say, you know, that story's just full of cheap grace. It's just full of cheap grace. I mean, look, this guy didn't do anything. And he got right back in. <laughs> what, what, what's, what's up with that? No atonement? No price was paid by the younger boy when he came home? That's cheap grace. Well, indeed, grace is free to the younger brother, but it's not free. It costs dearly. It always does. It cost someone else. You know who it was? The older brother. The older brother. He gets it. He got it. That's why he's so ticked. That's why he's so angry. He knows now that not only the boy's gone and squandered his third, now if the father lets him back in, now he's mooching off of and leaning on and using assets from his inheritance. The younger is blessed out of what belongs to the older. 
That's the only way you can be. You see, my friends, the salvation of the younger son is not free at all. The father cannot give the younger brother except at the expense of the older brother. It cost the older brother something to have the younger brother experience the fullness, the blessing of coming home as he did. Now, that's a problem, a couple of problems in the text. But what's missing? It's like there's this 800, I mean, this, this pink elephant that is sitting in the room of this story. And yet, most don't see it. And certainly the Pharisees and the religious leaders didn't see it. Maybe the tax collectors and the sinners, they might have. But what's missing in the story? One of the most significant things is to observe what is missing. Because Jesus deliberately left somebody out. He puts a lot of characters in his story. Normally, parables are not as complex as this one is. Most of them are much more straightforward, simple. Remember Rick's study on that. But there is something here that's almost being begged to be there, but it's not there. Think back. Remember? Jesus told his listeners, and who were they? There were two groups. There were the sinners that were welcoming and glad to be around Jesus because they knew they desperately needed him, and they were hanging on to every word he said. And then there's this group of Pharisees right over here, not far away, certainly within earshot, just grumbling all the way through. But Jesus was, and if you looked at the text carefully, it says he was talking to them. More than to the sinners, he was talking to the Pharisees. To the older brother types. And he starts out telling a story. A story about what? A sheep that got lost. And what happened? He told a story about the sheep. And then he told a story about a coin that got lost. And then he told a story about a son that got lost. Let's think about how the pattern went. Here we go. First of all, sheep gets lost. Shepherd is concerned about that, and he goes after seeking the lost sheep to find him and bring him back. And when finally, after great effort and, and, and uh, energy, he does find him and brings him back home and then throws what? A giant party and celebration with his friends. That's story number one. Story number two. There's a woman loses a precious coin. She can't find it. So she's something that's precious is lost. That woman then seeks diligently for it, and she goes out looking everywhere until finally she finds her precious lost coin. And just like the other story, she goes calls all her friends to come to her and celebrate her re-restoring of her precious lost coin. You see the pattern? Something's precious, lost. 
Someone goes after it, seeking it with intentionality, and when it's found, a great celebration occurs. Now here comes the third story. Something precious is lost, clearly. But what's missing? Nobody's going after the boy. Nobody's going to find him. And as far as the older brother, there's certainly no cause for celebration. You see what's missing? When you get to the third, his listeners would have expected someone to set out on a search for the lost boy and bring him home. They would have probably just been waiting for that, but Jesus didn't say that. Didn't happen in the story. Why? Because Jesus is trying to lead them to ask why. He's trying to get them to think about what's wrong with this picture. What's wrong with this picture? Something's off kilter. Something's way out of whack here. This isn't right. There should be somebody going after him. And the answer would have been quite clear to the first century listeners, to those over here, the Pharisees, I mean, the the publicans and tax collectors. They knew the job of the older brother. They knew it should have been him that was going. That was his job. That's the reason why he was in part given the extra inheritance over the younger brother. kind of thing that would have been expected might have been a response like this. If the elder brother in the parable had come to his father and said something like this, Father, look, my younger brother has blown it. He's been a fool. And now he's ruined his life. But dad, let me go. Look for him, and I promise you, I will bring him back home. And if the inheritance is gone, as I expect it might, I'll bring him back into the family at my expense. Where is that boy? There is no such boy in this story. He's not there. But what Jesus is saying by implication is this. He is saying to the Pharisees, standing before him, guys, that's your job. That's what you should have been doing. That's what I am doing. But that's what you should have been doing. You should have been going after the lost. And I tell you, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. But you see, Jesus doesn't put a brother like this in the story. Instead, the younger son and the father have to put up with the recalcitrant, self-righteous elder brother. But the good news of the gospel is this. You and I don't. We don't have to put up with that. We have a different elder brother. We have the true elder brother. 
the elder brother that should be, that we and everyone must and needs to have. That's what's being begged for here. You see, the elder brother in this story is there to make us long for the real deal. Wouldn't it be that someone would come for us? Wouldn't it be that there was an elder brother that would rescue us and bring us back from our foolishness? Well, my friend, there he is, and his name is Jesus. Jesus, the lover of sinners like me and like you. You see, he comes for us when we go astray. And he won't hold it against us, but he seeks us and brings us back at great cost to himself. Remember I told you that redemption, forgiveness, recovery, all, it always is costly. Jesus is himself the true elder brother sent from the Father to make known the unremitting, never-ending love of God. And he offers himself as our way home. He provides the way. He's the true elder brother that we need who had it all, but he was willing to give it all to find you and to find me and to find others that we usually think is unreachable, unforgivable. You see, he had it all, he came to pay it all. The hymn says, Jesus what? Paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He washed it white as snow. Now, there's one final thought here. Who's called for in this story? Jesus is what's missing from the story and he's what we need and he's what we get in the gospel when we believe and trust in him for our salvation. Not based on anything we have done, but what he has done, his righteousness becomes ours and we get to go home to the celebration of the Father we're going to look at next week. But what about, what's, what's, is there anything on a horizontal plane here? is also being called for maybe by this story? I believe there is. What's the take home for us? Well, part, it's this message, Philippians 2, 4 through 8. Listen. Let each of you look not on his own interests, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus? If you're a Christian, he's saying, this is the mind of your Savior. We want to be like him. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on 
cross. You see, such selfless love from Jesus produces that kind of love in his children. That kind of amazing, sacrificial, selfless love from Jesus is the only thing that can destroy your and my natural mistrust of the heart of God and cause us to be willing to say, Father, whatever you send, my God, whatever you ordain is right. You are my good Father. I trust you. Take care of me. It keeps us from that kind of love. It's the only thing that can overcome our fear, our mistrust, and make us neither younger brothers nor older brothers. That's the only kind. It's that love, the love of God that can make us neither wild, selfish, self-absorbed, self-actualizing younger brothers or self-righteous Better than you, older brothers. It's the only thing that can do that. The experience of such love calls for another kind of brother. It's what Marvin Olasky calls the third brother. If you've never listened to Olasky's uh, uh, thing on that, he's really fascinating. He, he talks about not just about spiritual things, but just just life things and how older brothers and younger brothers are all over the spectrum. They're in politics and both sides, you know, I've got an older brother side, a younger brother side, but he's talking about we need to be the third kind of brother. That's neither one of those two extremes. We need to be able to minister to both and to have a heart for both. Not to say, oh, those are the bad guys. We're going to stay away from them. We'll only go over. No, no. You've got to minister to both. From the center of Christ's love and realizing what he has done for you and me. We need to pray that we will become and that the churches will be filled with third brothers that are neither the older nor the younger, but love and go after and pursue both. Some of us might be more comfortable going after one side or the other, but we should be going for both. How about you and me? What kind of brothers are we? What kind of brother do you and do I want to be? You think about that. Amen. Father, Lord, we can't be that third kind of brother that is so desperately needed in our world today on our own unless you continue to break us with the good news of the gospel, overwhelm our selfish, small hearts, Lord, that are prone to gravitate to the younger or to the older or both at different times or at the same time. God, have mercy. Make us more and more Let our hearts be penetrated and opened up to truly love better because of such love that you have shown us in the one that we have been waiting for all our lives, your true son, the true elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom alone we have salvation. And we give you this prayer and make it in Jesus' name.